Hello, this is Tim, the lead pastor of Mosaic Portland, and welcome to the Mosaic Portland podcast. We exist to follow Jesus in authentic community for the world. And right now we're gathering Sundays online uh, to worship together and to open up scripture together. And then after that, we have virtual house gatherings that meet all over our city. And the great thing about these is that you can actually join in wherever you're listening from. We think these right now are the best way to be known, to connect with others, uh, and to be on mission together. They're also where we pray together on Sundays in smaller communities, where we take communion together and debrief what the talk was about and engage scripture more. If you want to find out more information of how to be a part of one in this season, you can find out more info on our website, mosaicportland.org. Now let's go to scripture together as we listen to this podcast. So good to be with you. Thanks for joining us, whether you're live on Sunday or you're listening or watching at another time. My name is Tim Osborne, and I'm the lead pastor mosaic and we this summer i hope your summer is going well uh, we're seeing god work in new ways and are excited about that this series that we're in this summer is called prayers of renewal and we've been asking and anticipating that god would work in a new way first in us and then in our church and then our city and, and the world Renewal is this idea that God brings new life when we orient our lives around him and throughout scripture we see prayers and stories and experiences of of that happening over and over and over again. And we wanna be part of that. We want that to be our story as well. In September of 1940, the German Air Force started an eight-month bombing campaign where they flew from German-occupied Europe across the English Channel over Britain and dropped bomb after bomb after bomb. Over eight months, they caused an immense amount of damage and 45,000 people were killed by German bombers. Before the bombing started, British military intelligence discovered how they were precisely aiming in the dark in the night. See, the Germans had developed this signal system where they beamed two strong signals across the the English Channel and would pinpoint them together. And so where the signals met, the bombers knew to drop their bombs. And what the British military intelligence were able to do rather quickly was to confuse those signals by adding another signal. And so as a plane would fly and ping their, their, their radar, their signal, it was used through Morse code, and they would ping and hear and then know that those are getting closer, closer, closer until they met and dropped their bomb. They would add in a different signal, and the British would reorient them and take them off course so instead of dropping their bombs on a factory or a village or a city, those bombs would drop in, say, a body of water or an empty field. And so what was meant for destruction actually didn't cause any destruction oftentimes. And so by that, they were able to to redirect planes and take them off course and preserve a lot of life. That idea of signals applies to our own life that we are constantly looking for. We can't help it. It's just who we are as human beings. We're looking to orient our lives around something. Some of us do it very intentionally and others of us, maybe we don't do it as intentionally, but we're all oriented around some kind of signals, whether that be values or belief systems or relationships. We find something in our life where we orient our lives and it directs us to a desired end. And that end might be to destruction or it might be to life. The God of the Bible has invited us to to life, and he's invited us to orient our lives around him. And when it comes to this idea of renewal, one of the things that God is doing is constantly inviting us to orient our lives around him so that our lives are renewed and renewed again and that we experience more and more life. 
a definition of renewal that we've been using. And renewal might be a new idea or a concept to you. And so I think it's important that we revisit this definition over and over. Maybe you've heard of revival before or awakening and you're familiar with how God worked throughout scripture, throughout the history of the church and brought new moves of his spirit to bring hope and peace and justice, salvation and redemption into people's lives and communities' lives. And we're hoping and praying for more of that in our lives, in our church, and in our city. Here's, an, here's a definition of renewal. It's new life experienced in individuals and communities and cultures when aligned or realigned with God's presence, resulting in participation in God's kingdom purposes for the world. That's what we're hoping and that's what we see throughout scripture is that when we orient our lives around God, when we realign or align for the first time around who God is and what he's calling us to, new life is one of the things that he gives to us and causes to happen in our lives. And so what I want us to do today is to, is to question for a moment, what are the signals that are directing our lives and to what end are they directing us? Are they directing us to, to destruction or to life? Last week, Adam looked at one of the most well-known prayers of Jesus, which is a prayer of renewal, if you've never thought of it that way before. But Jesus teaches his, his first friends, his first disciples, how to pray. They've been asking him how to pray, and he says, this then is how you should pray. And he walks them through what's known as the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. It's well-known. It might be familiar to you. If it's not, we're going to look at just a phrase of it this, this moment right now. If you've got a Bible, find your way to Matthew chapter 6. And in the first, uh, in, the, in chapter 6 verse 9, we, we hear Jesus teaching his disciples. Listen just to, the, just to the first phrase of it. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Just the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer. Whenever I read this, I almost say, Our Father who art in heaven. That's the way that I learned it a long time ago. In this translation, this version of the Bible, it's just our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. One of the things that Jesus wants us to know right away is that we're invited into a relationship with the God of the universe. And the relationship is one of those signals that de dis defines our lives and directs our lives of where we go. And so right from the beginning in Jesus' prayer of renewal, he's, he's reminding us and training us and teaching us to, to pray as if we're in relationship with the God of the world. That that is one of the things that guides and directs our lives. It, it, by using the word father, Jesus is, is introducing a bit of a, of a shockwave to his first followers. They would have been Jewish men. They would have been trained and been very familiar with the Old Testament. They wouldn't have known it as old. They just would have known it as the scriptures. And over and over, as they, as they knew God through scripture in, that, in the first century, father would not have been the first thing that they had thought of when they, they thought of God. When we use the term father now, we have all sorts of ideas and conceptions that come into our minds. Our own fathers, last week we celebrated Father's Day. And for some of us, that's a, that's a great time and, a, and easy to celebrate. Others of us, it's, it's a real struggle because all of our fathers are human. And that means they're flawed. And so when we think of father, we think of both the ideal that we want and long for and that some of us have experienced and we also think of all of the failures of our earthly fathers. Jesus was causing a shockwave early on to his first followers by, by training them to pray and starting out by saying, our father, because they would have thought of God as someone who's far off and as big. He also is present in their world, but not necessarily personal in the way that Jesus was pushing them and urging them 
to interact and relate to God. And so right from the beginning, he's, he's saying, I want you to know you have a privileged relationship with the God of the universe by introducing this intimate idea as father. They would have known Yahweh and Elohim and Jehovah and Jehovah Jireh and all different titles that they would have known, names for God throughout what we know as the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, let's start with this, our father, intimate personal relationship with the God of the universe. It's also significant that we start with our, because it's not just mine, but it's our, it's a collective, it's a social, it's a, it's a communal experience that we know God together. And what a privilege it is for us that, that God's invited us into a family, not just in a singular relationship with him, while that's most important, but also to be in a family with others that are walking with God, our Father. And so there's that personal relational part. If you can think of that as one signal, one just reality, this is what is, is that the God of the universe knows us personally and invites us into relationship with him. And that's one of the things that we can we can boundary ourselves with, we can brush up against, we can know, we can hang on to and say that is true and that is real, that God knows me and I can know him. And the other signal comes in two other words in this first phrase, heaven and hallowed. Hallowed is this, uh, it's this word we don't use, so it's helpful just to make sure we we know what, what Jesus is meaning when it's used here in scripture. Hallowed is this idea of consecrated or holy or set apart or unique, there's no one like him. He's far above. We get this idea of transcendence. If eminence is God being close and personal, transcendence is this idea of being really far and above. And so hallowed is, hallowed be your name. There's no one like you. You're unique. The other word is heaven. And Jesus says, our father in heaven. It's where he is. It's his address. It's not that he's not here, but it's that the idea, the image that we have is that God resides in heaven. And there's a lot of things we could say about heaven. But one of the images that we're intended to have is that God is on a throne. There's heaven and then there's a throne in heaven and God is on the throne in heaven. And so when Jesus is training that there's this intimate, our father signal or reality of our relationship with God, there's also the other side of that. The other signal is that God is mighty and pure and powerful and holy, hallowed, and he is on the throne in heaven. He's the king. And we need both of those. If we only have one of those, the place that we end up is not the place that God's inviting us to. We need to have both. And so for the very beginning, Jesus is introducing and training us to relate to him and to relate to God and both as intimate father that we have a personal relationship with and that we also have a personal relationship with it's the God, the king of the universe, that both of those are true at the same time. And those are things that direct us towards the renewal that God wants to bring in our life. It's really helpful for us to maybe use a reference point in human history, both in our recent past and then in our present now. Because like the British redirected towards life versus destruction, those bombers who were dropping bombs from the German Air Force, we have influences that take us to destruction and confuse our signals at times. I read a, uh, a great book this past year called Live Not By Lies. It's by an author named Rod Dreher. Um, I recommend it. The, the subtitle is A Manual for Christian Dissidents, and uh, maybe if that interests you, great. If not, but I'd encourage you to take a look at it. But um, Live Not By Lies is a phrase taken uh, from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, who was a, a Russian prisoner in communist Russia, Soviet Union, and um, he wrote a, a well-known book called the uh, Gulag Archipelago. Archip- 
tell ago. And, uh, and then he wrote a number of other books and articles and live not by lies is his way of saying, stand for the truth even when everything around you is a different signal that's taking you away from Jesus. And so uh, that's kind of what spurred the book. And, and Rod Dreher goes back and, and interviews uh, a number of people who lived through communism. And they shared their experiences of how t- truth was tr- twisted. And so his call to live not by lies. He ends the book by reporting uh, or recording a reporter who went back and interviewed others uh, throughout uh, Soviet uh, uh, Russia and uh, Eastern Europe. And one of the things that, that this reporter was pointing to was how ideas of what freedom is and what, what would be best for humanity got so twisted during those decades. He writes this, the message this reporter found, the message he found was this, the secular liberal ideal of freedom so popular in the West and among many in his post-communist generation is a lie. That is, the concept that real freedom is found by liberating the self from all binding commitments to God, to marriage, to family, and by increasing worldly comforts. That is, a road that leads to hell. Kriska observed that the only force in society standing in the middle of that wide road yelling stop were the traditional Christian churches. That might be a lot to take in. Hear this though. The idea of freedom that is so popular, and he says in the West, and you can think of West as Western culture, Western Europe and, and, and North America, not, not Eastern cultures and, um, and, and uh, worldviews. But he's saying the idea, and, and we're familiar with this, that freedom is having nothing limiting us, nothing directing us, nothing bound us in. He's saying that idea of freedom, freedom from all commitments to God, to marriage, to family, is what gives life fulfillment, that brings life. And he says, no, no, that's, a, that's a, a signal that takes us towards destruction. That's not one that takes us towards life. That it's the, the biblical idea, the invitation from Jesus, even in his prayers, he's training his first followers, is to say, no, remind yourself, pray to the God who's an intimate father who knows you and wants to be known by you and is also the king that is on the throne in heaven and that we don't have freedom where there's no lines but we actually have signals and by having those two healthy signals that guide us, that define our relationship with the God of the universe, that actually brings life and a better freedom. C.S. Lewis says it this way in in mere Christianity. He says, living in this world with these kinds of ideas that counter to freedom that the, the, the scripture de- describes as freedom and, and counter to the, the relationship that God invites us to, but yet being not bound by that at all. It's like living in enemy territory. He goes on. He says, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. And you can picture Jesus. We can picture Jesus there, that, that God has come to us that Jesus has come to us fully God and fully man. The rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. I love how he says that, a great campaign of sabotage. That he's sabotaging these signals of our culture and our world that we claim, that our world claims are true but actually lead toward destruction and that the rightful king, Jesus, has shown up, landed in disguise as a suffering servant, willing to die on the cross, 
to confuse the signals that are leading towards destruction, to cause sabotage in hopes of pointing us towards life. I've uh, referenced a book, it's been helpful kind of in, in helping inform where we're going in this series called uh, Reappearing Church by a pastor in Melbourne, Australia named Mark Sayers. I wanna read this to us because I think it's so helpful here as well as we consider who is it that we're aligning our lives around? Who is it that we're relating to that's directing the trajectory of our life, not to destruction, but to life? We always have these options and these competing signals before us. He says it this way, in comparing much of our culture today in our world, he says this, and he's compar- what he's comparing to is a, is a culture that says that we can make it on our own, that we can do it on our own. One of the things that Adam looked at last week and talked about and shared from his own life is the, the, the pull towards self-reliance that all of us can relate to, that we can do it on our own, we can make it on our own. And he says this, hence driven by the belief that we can attain perfection without the divine, faith in God gives over to faith in ourselves. Thus, the secular progressive myth seeks to gain the fruit of God's kingdom, such as justice, peace, prosperity, and redemption, but without the king. Much of our culture today, what he calls a secular progressive myth, tells us that we can do it on our own, and we can pursue and experience things that Jesus is offering through his kingdom, prosperity, and meaning not just money, He's not talking about money, but the prosperity of renewed life in this existence, in the here and now. Redemption, a relationship with the God of the universe. Justice, peace. Those kinds of things that Jesus is promising and pointing to and inviting us in. That we want those, that the world wants those, and yet we want it without a king. We we don't want anybody else on the throne other than ourselves. We wanna take that signal that says, hallowed be your name that you are in heaven, that you are on the throne, God. We wanna take that and we wanna adjust that signal a little bit and we end up pointing ourselves towards destruction, which we see so frequently, which we've experienced, which our friends and family have experienced at times when we get outside of those signals that's inviting us to new and renewed life, aligned and oriented around the God of the universe. I want us to listen to a prayer of somebody else in scripture. His name is David. And David is king, and he's got a dramatic life, but he ends it as king uh, of the nation of Israel. And David has this prayer that is a prayer, not of renewal, but it is the prayer of adoration to who God is, that declares who God is, that involves both of those signals, one of intimate awareness and relationship with God and clear claiming of him as the God of the universe that sits on the throne. And it's found in a unique moment in David's life where what David uh, is doing is he's just collected all of this, we could call it bounty or riches. It's gold, it's silver, iron, wood, turquoise, onyx, and he's gathered all of these natural resources because he's a king of great wealth. He's been king for 40 years, and he gathers them all because he wants to build God a house. He wants to build a temple for God. And right in front of him, you can, you can see it, you can touch it, all of this wealth. And he says, pull it together. And then he invites the nation to give more and say, we're gonna give all of this and we're gonna put it into a building project and build God a temple. Give him an address as if God needs an address. But God says, okay, I'll allow you to build me a temple, but it's not gonna be you, David. It's gonna be your son, Solomon. 
And David prays to God and he declares the greatness of God. And what it does for David is it, it redirects him, it reorients him to says, I would like to build you a temple, God, but I'm reoriented to you and where you're taking me, not just my own desires. I'm gonna fall in line with where you're projecting my life to go, and I'm gonna obey you and acknowledge how great you are. And so this prayer shows up right between gathering all of these riches of rich, bountiful, natural resources that, that they've been blessed with as a nation, and the transfer of power where David steps out of the throne and lets Solomon come into the throne. And it's this really orienting prayer and so I'm going to read it as we close today and invite you to, to read it and reference back to it throughout the next coming weeks as we go through this summer as it, as it orients us to who God is and what he's inviting us into, that we would have new life from him, that we wouldn't try to find it on our own. It's in First Chronicles chapter 29, and it begins in verse 10 and it goes through verse 13. So let's listen to it together. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel. From everlasting to everlasting, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. You can hear in these words of David's prayer this orienting, God, you are great. All power and glory and strength is for you. It's yours alone. You are the one that gives all that we have. You make the choice to give. There's a sense of surrender and bowing down to how great God is and acknowledging him as king and Lord over everything. Let's read it together again, and we'll close with this. Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name.